Greetings and welcome again to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we are starting out on a new book. We are in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. It's the book of Philippians out of the New Testament. And we'll be covering chapter 1 today. Well, I look forward to this journey and I think the message that Paul gives to the Philippian church is profoundly relevant to believers today as we seek to navigate our way through this life and this world, keeping our eyes on our Savior. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would help us to hear and understand the message that you have for us in this text today. Lord, we know it spoke to those to whom you gave it so long ago, and yet we know that your word is still active and your word still has impact and a message even for us today. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to respond to the promptings of your spirit, that we would refresh our commitment to obedience to you that we would seek to live in your spirit, glorifying you in what we do. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to respond to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, much like his letter to the church at Ephesus. Paul is writing from prison in Rome. And again, much like that letter to the church at Ephesus, he is writing it for the purpose of encouraging the believers there at Philippi. He's also expressing his thanks for a gift that they had sent with Epaphras. So, or Epaphroditus. Anyway, we'll get to that later. Point is, this book is about encouragement. It is about building up believers, strengthening their faith, and spurring them on in their service of God. This was written probably around 61 AD, more or less. And um, the church at Philippi was started by Paul and his co-travelers on his second missionary journey. It was You may remember that instance in Acts of the Macedonian call, the vision of the Macedonian beckoning him over. Well, this is the response of that. Uh, You might remember the Philippian jailer, the first converts in this church. Um, This is the first establishment of the Christian church in Europe. Everything else had been in what we would consider the Middle East, around the Mediterranean, the, the eastern and southern part of the Mediterranean. This is the first instance where the gospel ventured over to Europe. Now, we know that Paul had plans to take the gospel as far as Spain. We don't know for sure if he ever made it there, although there's some indications he probably did. In fact, we're pretty sure, not positive again, but pretty sure that it is possible the gospel made it as far as the British Isles by the end of the first century. So this was a a fantastic time for the spread of the gospel. And much of the spread of the gospel we're going to see hinted at here in this first chapter, not just with the Philippian church, but with Paul's imprisonment in Rome. 
we may not normally think of imprisonment as this great tool of the gospel that God is using, but it is because it gave Paul opportunity to, on a regular basis, live out in front of them and share verbally with them the gospel of Christ. All of his guards, and he was under the the guardianship, we believe, of, of the Praetorians. So they, these were key people in the Roman military. And he had the opportunity repeatedly to share the gospel with them, to talk about matters of faith with them, to, as we would say in our modern vernacular, lead them to Christ. And then those men get sent out by Rome to various places around the Roman world. Think of how God used that network to spread the gospel. And we have historical accounts that show that he did, in fact, use that network to spread the gospel. So God is doing amazing things, even when we don't see them on the surface. Well, let's get to this first chapter. Again, this is Paul writing a letter to the church, and it follows the standard form of a letter with its opening greeting and and so on and so forth. So let's just dive in with that, that first opening greeting that includes a, little, a blessing of the church. Here it is, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy. Now, this isn't the only letter that he includes Timothy on, but Timothy's there with him and, and pretty much his right hand in doing all of this. He says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. Yeah, he said slaves of Christ. I've talked about that in previous podcasts. You're welcome to go back and look at Ephesians. I spend a good while camped on it there. This idea of being slaves to Christ is exactly right and exactly scriptural. We don't work for Christ where he's in our employer and, you know, as long as we're at work, we have to do what he says, but the rest of the time it's ours or the boss says to do this, but I disagree. So maybe I'll do lip service to it, but I'm not actually going to do it. No, those aren't options. The right attitude in our relationship for Christ was we were slaves of sin, and that leads to death, eternal death. But Christ bought us with the price of his blood shed on the cross for our sin so that we could be free from being slaves to sin and gain a new master, that master being Christ. So there's a, a wholehearted devotion here. There is an unquestioning loyalty and obedience here. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So he's, he's asking that God would give them both grace and peace. Uh, as they have experienced his grace, but also that there would be continuing grace and peace amongst the body. Now, he references two groups there. He talks about elders and deacons. Elders can be interpreted as overseers or translated as overseers or 
bishops, uh, different English renderings do it different ways. But basically in the early church, it seems that there were two leadership groups within the church, if you will. Um, two groups with special responsibility may be a better way to describe that because there was not a professional clergy. There wasn't a clergy laity thing going on in the first century church. That's something that develops later on down the road. But what we've got going on is there are those who are tasked with the spiritual leadership of the congregation, with the teaching of God's word. They are much like the apostles to be dedicated to uh, prayer and study of the word and then imparting that to the believers there. Those would be the elders. And then there are those tasked with the physical needs of the congregation, of, of the believers in a community, of, if you will, of the church. Those would be the deacons. And you can go back and read Acts chapter 6 for a pretty good breakdown. I know it's apostles and it's the servants, but we, the servants come to be called deacons and we don't have apostles anymore, but we have um, pastors, evangelists, etc., cetera, uh, that are called to those spiritual areas of guidance for the church or assistance to the church. And then those individuals that are called to areas of, of more practical and physical, um, I don't even like using the word practical, but more physical endeavors within the church, meeting the physical needs, the waiting on, on tables, the caring for the widows and orphans. That doesn't mean that pastors don't care about widows and orphans, okay? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the, the divvying up of the workload in the church is, is a little broader than that. And ultimately, the workload's divvied up among all of us that know Christ. But there are roles within the church, and Paul's addressing the two common ones at that time, elders and deacons. So there you go. So let's pick up in verse 3. Paul says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. So he's saying, look, you guys are a joy. Every time you cross my mind, I'm thanking God for you. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard until now. So he's proclaiming their faithfulness and saying, look, because of that, every time I'm in prayer, I'm lifting you guys up and I'm doing it with joy, not, God, it's the Philippians again. Please do something. You know, um, you almost get that sense when he's praying for, say, the church at Corinth sometimes. Or th there isn't a problem that he's addressing here with the Philippians. He's saying, look, you guys, from the time you came to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have been there with me in the trenches, sharing the gospel. Even when it's not easy, you're doing it. And that just lightens his heart. That gives him a joy. I would say it's always a joy in ministry to, to clearly see that you're not alone that there are others walking that path of obedience to Christ with you. And then he shifts a little bit and he gets to six. And I want to look at verse six and, and unpack it a little bit. In verse six, it says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. What's he talking about? What is this work that was started, but isn't finished? 
Is he saying we're not really saved until the return of Christ? You know, what, what is he saying? He's not saying we're not really saved. Okay, let's clear that up. But what he is saying is this. There was a point in time in which we responded to the message of the gospel. We turned to God for salvation, accepting his forgiveness and grace. And when we did that, we were declared justified with God. Covered by the blood of Christ, our sins atoned for. And we were given in the eyes of God a righteousness that we didn't earn, but that was his gift through Christ. We were justified. Now, the rest of our earthly lives we spend being sanctified, growing in faith and obedience to Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit within us and by our obedience. So, the work he began in us, well, he saved us. That was the first step in us growing being, uh, in Paul's words elsewhere, being transformed into the image of Christ. Well, that work that he's now continuing to do is that transformation process, sanctification, until ultimately on that day, finally finished on that day when Christ Jesus returns, that's when we experience glorification. The growing is over, and we get eternity in the presence of God in our resurrected bodies, in our glorified state. Don't ask me what it's going to look like or what exactly it's going to be like. I don't know. But I can tell you from Scripture, the best picture I get is it's going to be awesome and pretty much beyond our frame of reference. So let's look forward to it. Let's not waste our time trying to figure it out. Let's look forward to it. Understanding God has begun a work in us that brings us salvation, but he's not done. He's still working in our lives and on our lives. Well, let's move on to verse 7. He goes on to say, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with a tender compassion, or with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. This is a, a flock, if you will, that Paul loves. I mean, he went to Philippi to begin with because God gave him a vision of a Macedonian standing there, beckoning. Um, Paul loves this church. And he has experienced persecution and imprisonment. And they know what that's like, too. Philippi was a Roman outpost. Proclamation of the gospel there we could say was not well received by those in charge. And yet they stood with Paul during his Roman imprisonment. They sent gifts to him to encourage him, to sustain him, to financially sustain him even during this time. 
and he is expressing his his love for the church, um, that he has compassion for what they're going through, and that he is glad that they share with him that special, as he calls it, favor of God. Uh, and he talks more about that later on, but that that experience of through hardship, growing closer to God and closer to each other. It's a profound thing. Well, let's look at verse 9. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. So what's he saying there? Well, he's still talking about how much he appreciates them, that he prays for them. And one of the things he prays for them about is just that, that they will keep growing in their knowledge and understanding, that their lives will exemplify the love of Christ, that it will overflow more and more. In other words, that they'll look more and more like like what God is shaping them into, the image of Christ. For I want you to understand what really matters. Oh, that we all heard this passage and began to understand what really matters. See, they experienced hardships, they experienced persecution, they experienced um, being ostracized by their community at various points, they experienced lots of things. And yet Paul is saying, I want you to understand what really matters, not what you're going through, but what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day Christ returns. What is it that really matters that will lead us to live those pure and blameless lives until his return? Well, the next verse kind of answers that in 11. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. And then he kind of gives an explanation. What is the fruit of your salvation? The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. What really matters? Our lives bringing glory and praise to God. Our lives showing Christ and pointing others towards Christ. What really matters is the eternal. Now, Paul shifts a little bit in verse 12 and starts talking about the gospel being proclaimed and how glad he is that that's happening. And he addresses some of the situations in which that's happening. Um, let's look at it, starting in 12. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has happened to spread the good news. So Paul's looking, he's sitting in prison in Rome going, hey, all of this, you need to understand, all of this has a purpose. It is happening to me to help the spread of the good news. And he really doesn't give any indication that he's upset about that either. It's like, hey, if this is what's necessary for the gospel to spread, then bring it on. 
13. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So he's seeing that those that didn't know have now heard. They know why he's in chains because of Christ. Because you know Paul, he's telling them. But also the believers that were already there in Rome are becoming bold in their faith, bold with the message of the gospel. They have gained the confidence and gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Now, does that mean bad things can't happen when we stand up and proclaim the gospel? No, bad things can, and according to what Peter has to say in his letters to the church, will happen. But it's okay. Remember what matters. Remember what has eternal consequence. Remember what the goal is. If your goal is to have an easy life and to be well accepted by everybody all the time, and everybody will only say good things about you, number one, you're delusional and you need help. But number two, that's just not reality and it's not what we're called to as believers. We have an audience of one. We have one that we should seek to please. One that we should seek approval of our life and our life choices from. One that we really want to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We want to hear that from one. And even if all the rest of the world around us says something different, it's what the one says. It's what Christ says that matters. All too often, I think we confuse ourselves or convince ourselves of of some truth other than that, which I guess by definition would not be truth, but we treat it like it is. He says again, and because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It is true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for the, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. So Paul expected to be set free, and he was this time around. It's a bit different tone than we see, say, over in Second Timothy, where he's imprisoned and figuring he's facing death. But Paul is talking about those that proclaim the gospel, that he has, uh, his imprisonment and his boldness, even being in prison, has inspired others to proclaim the gospel. And he admits, hey, there's guys out there, and the indications are they're guys in the church. They're probably believers. They're just messed up believers. 
that for whatever reason don't like Paul, have an issue with him. They're jealous. They don't like the fact this guy in prison that came from over in Antioch and whatever, that, that he's getting all this attention and people think he's great and maybe don't think they're all that hot anymore. Whatever the reason, their motives aren't necessarily pure. Their motives aren't about the gospel and seeing people saved, but they're still proclaiming the gospel thinking, well, if I do this, then it's going to make life tougher for Paul. Or if, if I do this, it'll make me look better. Or that doesn't change the truth of the gospel. It doesn't change the fact that the power of the gospel is not in the one delivering the message, but the one who offers the gift. And so Paul says, hey, either way, the message about Christ is being preached. So I rejoice. Hmm, what a wonderful attitude Paul shares with us. Now, starting in verse 20, we see Paul talking about his expectations and his hopes. And, well, he flat out says that. Let's read it. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. So what would it be that would that would shame Paul to look back on his life and, and see that he pulled back from sharing the gospel. That he did not keep, as we say these days, the main thing, the main thing. That he got off base with it. But he expects and is hopeful that that day is never going to come. He's never going to be ashamed. He will continue to be bold for Christ as he's been in the past. And then he goes on, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For me, living means living for Christ and dying. It's even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between these two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because what he is do because of what he is doing through me. See, it's still focused on Christ. It's when you look at my life, it's not, wow, look how great Paul is. He's saying, look, when you look at my life, it's going to be evident. And you're going to go, wow, look how great Jesus is. He did that in Paul's life. But he brings up a tough topic there. If I live, what's it mean? And if I die, what's it mean? He says, for me, living means living for Christ. Well, that's pretty straightforward. If I'm alive, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to live out my relationship with him. I'm going to proclaim the message of the gospel. I am going to, to encourage other believers. I'm going to make Christ known in every way, shape, and form I can. But if I die, that's even better. 
for me. Because when I die, I know I will be in the presence of Christ for all eternity. So Paul says, you know, really, at the core of who I am, I'm torn. Because I love you guys and I want to be here and I want to share the gospel with you and I want to encourage you and walk with you in faith. But if God calls me home, it's going to be even better. So do I want this or do I want what's going to be even better that I know is coming eventually anyway? And Paul settles in with, you know, I'm, I'm confident. He says, for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. And he seems to express this, this uh, confidence that yeah, God's going to keep him alive for their benefit. I've shared a phrase over the past few years and shared it with one of our church members recently. Um, just a little uh, quip about, you know, I'm, I'm ready as far as facing death goes. I'm ready. I'm not in a hurry, but I'm ready. And when I say that, I mean, much like Paul, you know, God's got stuff for me to do here and I'm gladly doing it. And I receive joy and blessing through doing it. And I, I, I love seeing what happens in the lives of others as they begin to faithfully follow the Lord and grow in him. And it's a joy. It really is. I, I love my family. I love many things that happen in my life and the people in my life. But you know, none of that compares with being in the presence of Christ. So I'm not seeking out the end of my life. But on the day that it happens, it's not a loss to me. In fact, it's going to be a big gain for me. So I'm not shying away from that. So I'm not putting myself on the same level as Paul here, but you know, that is the healthy Christian viewpoint to understand that relationship, to not be overly attached to what is here and now, but to keep our eyes fixed on him. Now we get to verse 27. And here Paul gives this great encouragement to these believers at, at Philippi, the Philippian church, which again is under Roman rule, is a, is a key colony of Rome, if you will, there in, in northern uh, Greece, Macedonia. And Paul is sitting in prison in Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire. So the idea of citizenship, hmm. That carries some significance in both of those locales. So does the idea of suffering for the gospel as Paul is sitting in a Roman prison for proclaiming the gospel. So, here's what he says. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, 
Whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We're in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So there Paul is just giving him a, a perspective, if you will, a reminder. Your citizenship, for them, it's not Rome. For us, it's not the United States or wherever you may be as a citizen right now listening to this. That, if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, is not where you are a citizen. You're a citizen in his kingdom, and you need to live like it. You need to live with the priorities of a citizen of the kingdom of God, a citizen of heaven. And those priorities are about proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the gospel. I love verse 29. He says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Now, this isn't some, you know, oh, so-and-so made fun of me because I wore my cross at work the other day. No. You may not enjoy that, but that's not the suffering he's talking about. He's talking about the suffering that costs you family, that costs you livelihood, that costs you home, that costs you your earthly freedom, that could cost you your life that suffering for the reason that you have been proclaiming the gospel of Christ. There is something about that that brings us closer to Christ, that unites us, as Paul talks about elsewhere, unites us with Christ in that suffering for his word, for his good news. And so Paul gives that to them as an encouragement. Remember where your citizenship is. You're a citizen of heaven. Live like it. And in living like it, know that you have the privilege of trusting in Christ and also the privilege of suffering for him. Then he reminds them, look, we're in this together. You know my struggles. You know I'm suffering. So when you are too, just know we're in this together. What words of encouragement for that Philippian church? What words of encouragement for us today? May we live as citizens of heaven. And may we understand that when we stand on the gospel, when we live lives to proclaim the gospel and glorify Christ, that may bring suffering in our lives. But understand that suffering is a gift from God that will bring us closer to Christ. And let's keep our eyes on what really matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you 
you have blessed us. You have given us your gospel message, the redeeming work of Christ. You've given us salvation and a right standing with you, Father. You have declared us your children, citizens of your kingdom, Father, even heirs of your kingdom. Help us to live that reality. Help us to not be so attached here, but even more attached to you as we seek to live our lives for your glory. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.